You are listening to Hide and Horn, a series exploring the backgrounds, aesthetic qualities, and perceptions of saddle making through the words and experiences of those that build them. I'm your host, Ian Halligan. Blending artistic excellence and expression with practical, functional use, the Western saddle is iconic of the American cowboy. In Wyoming, a state rich in ranching heritage is equally rich in highly talented custom saddle makers. Legends like Don King, Bill Gardner, Chester Hape, and many others are synonymous with high-quality craftsmanship, while the Sheridan style of stamping and carving continues to influence and inspire countless artists in leather and other mediums. Over the past several years, saddle making has experienced a renaissance as part of the larger interest in leatherworking. Not only have the number of saddle makers increased, but... As some have argued, the quality of craftsmanship has equally been at its finest. Hyde and Horn aims to celebrate this uniquely American art form through the words and experiences of saddlemakers themselves. Presenting the stories of established and emerging saddlemakers alike, we start this series with Wyoming, a state renowned across the United States for its long legacy of saddlemakers and continued association with high-quality craftsmanship. A saddle is, first and foremost, a tool. And, like any other piece of ranching equipment, the saddle has developed over time and place to suit the needs of those that use them. In addition to the location and use, saddle making is also reflected in the state's history and its culture. For this first episode, we will explore how these and other influences shaped custom saddle making in Wyoming. Jeremy Johnston. I am the Tate Endowed Chair of Western History and the Goppert Curator of the Buffalo Bill Museum at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. Ranching runs deep in Wyoming. While the first settlements, comprised of towns and military posts, primarily served as stops along the Mormon, California, and Oregon trails, the Civil War would play a crucial role in transitioning Wyoming towards ranching. To learn more on this history, I sat down for a phone call with Jeremy Johnston, curator at the Buffalo Bill Museum in Cody. Cattle ranching in the American West really gets its start after the Civil War. And the Civil War contributes to this in a couple of ways. First of all, it creates a great disruption in Texas. And you have all these ranchers down in Texas turning their cattle loose because they're going off to fight in the war. And when they return from the war, these uh, these cattle are just roaming around wild and it's basically first come, first serve. Whoever wants these cattle can come and take them. Also, with the Civil War, you get this great industrial growth in the northern states. And the cities really begin to, to take off in population and developing manufacturing economies, which means a lot of workers are immigrating into the city and they need food. So that creates the demand for things like beef. And also with the Civil War, you get the passage of the Transcontinental Railroad Act because the South has now left the Union. And with the building of the Union Pacific Railroad through the Great Plains, you now have a transportation route to haul these cattle to those markets in the cities. So a number of forces kind of coming together here after the Civil War. So if you're a cowboy, a rancher down in Texas, you have the the supply, 
you need to get it to where the demand is in the cities. So that leads to the creation of these great Texas cattle drives. As Texas cattle drives brought herds northward, the Transcontinental Railroad and Homestead Acts spurred settlement and growth in Wyoming. While higher altitudes and severe weather limited the ability to farm, the land proved ideal for cattle. With the mass killing of bison for hides, coupled with the forced removal and confinement of Plains Indians to reservations, the end result was wide, open range for ranchers to lead cattle for grazing. As the cattle of multiple ranchers intermingled on the range, livestock were gathered and separated in roundups, being sent to the market in the fall and branded in the spring. With the first ranches established after the completion of the railroads, a strong political base was formed to protect these growing interests in the industry. By 1872, organizations like the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, or WSGA, sought to standardize the cattle industry in the state through controlling cattle brands, overseeing roundups, and hiring stock detectives to look after livestock. But while these years following the Civil War would be marked by substantial growth, by the late 1880s, the Wyoming ranching industry would experience a sharp decline, brought on by both man-made as well as natural disaster. What really did in ranching was it became too popular. You know, you have people like James Brisbane writing books titled How to Get Rich on the Plains, and people were reading this, and it was basically the get-rich-quick scheme of the 1870s and 1880s. Now, for a very little down, you could come out to the American West, go out, claim land for free, bring in a herd of cattle, turn them loose, and just sit back and watch your investment grow. And so what happens is you begin to stress all the, the grass that's out here on the range, and you get a condition where we have overgrazing and there's just simply not enough land to provide the number of cattle that are running loose out here. And what really caused the big collapse was the blizzard of 1886-87. So it was a very long winter and a lot of snow, severely cold temperatures. There was a Chinook that came through. So come spring of 1887, you had thousands and thousands of cattle that are wiped out because of the storm. While smaller ranches closed in the wake of these disasters, wealthier ranch owners began to consolidate. The passage of the Maverick Law, declaring any unbranded calf the sole property of the WSGA, sought to end any further attempts to homestead and establish smaller ranches. Using funds from these calves, auctioned and sold to the highest bidder, additional stock detectives were recruited serving as a police force for the WSGA and forcing small ranch owners off their land under false accusations of cattle rustling or simply through intimidation. Growing tensions from the actions of stock detectives and the WSGA would reach a tipping point by the close of the 1880s. After the lynching of two local ranchers by stock detectives under false pretenses, public outcry, coupled with years of intimidation and violence, would lead to one of the most well-known range wars in the American West the Johnson County War. So beginning in the 1880s, we an eruption in the conflict here on the range. The cattle wars really begin. And you have uh, ranchers that are going out and they're hanging people like Cattle Kate Watson, who was a single woman homesteader who hooked up with James Averell. And the two of them were lynched because they uh, were settling on land that was claimed by the Sun Ranch. And, you know, Wyoming being the first territory in the first state to grant women voting rights was also the first state to, you know, hang, lynch a woman, which didn't really uh, give the cattle barons a good image. So they uh, 
began to transform her image from being a single woman homesteader into a prostitute who would exchange her services for stolen cattle. As outrage turned to resistance, several figures during this period would enter into the pantheon of American West legend. Of those during the Johnson County War, however, the story of Nate Champion has come to signify the quintessential folk hero of class struggle in Wyoming. Jeremy Johnston describes the story at length, where the Texas invaders, composed of gunmen hired by the WSGA and led by outlaw Frank Canton, confront Nate Champion at the KC Ranch. There were two killings in Johnson County, and one of the killings... Frank Canton was the one who had killed these individuals. Frank Canton was a former Texas outlaw who did some time down in Texas and then came back up here, changed his name, and became a lawman. And he was considered to be on the side of the large ranchers. Nate Champion was a Texas cowboy, and there was all sorts of assertions that he was leading this gang of rustlers throughout Johnson County called the Red Sash Gang. Stories begin to build up and rumors that you have this organized criminal outfit in Johnson County. And the Wyoming Stock Growers Association decides to recruit a number of Texas gunfighters to come up and basically go through Buffalo, uh, Johnson County, and Buffalo was the county seat. They would blow up the courthouse. They had a dead list of all these rustlers they were going to kill, including, including Nate Champion. And they ran into Nate Champion and Nick Ray at the KC Ranch House. And they surrounded the KC Ranch House and they managed to uh, set the ranch house on fire. And Nick Ray had died. He was one of the first that was shot when he came out in the morning. And as the fire started burning down the cabin, Nate Champion ran out guns blazing. They gunned him down. Supposedly, one of the reporters with the group found a last will and testament or a last diary of Nate Champion where he wrote about the entire account, you know, uh, describing what was going on in the little cabin there that they were besieged in. Unfortunately, the original document, right after the newspaper reporter supposedly copied it, the wind caught it and blew it, around, blew it away. So the <laughs> legitimacy of that last diary is somewhat questionable. Regardless of its legitimacy, the story of Nate Champion's heroic last stand became a signal for those in Buffalo and surrounding Johnson County. Stories detailing the violence in Johnson County would find itself in the national spotlight. Eventually, after dire calls from the Wyoming governor to President Benjamin Harrison, federal troops would be sent in to prevent any further bloodshed. While arrests were made and charges given to the invaders following the discovery of their motives, a sympathetic court led to many charges being dropped and the invaders fleeing back to Texas. By 1893, the majority of killings had ceased, leaving dozens dead and a state forever changed. But while the Johnson County War had redefined the American West, in neighboring Sheridan County, the next century would bring a complete change in the image of the Western Saddle. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that that's been a big ranching area, particularly the Powder River Basin, which is this big area. Historically, it was ranch country. Dr. Tim Evans, Associate Professor of Folk Studies at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and author of King of the Western Saddle, The Sheridan Saddle and the Art of Don King. 
Um, and the railroad came into Sheridan in the latter part of the 19th century. So that became a center for shipping cattle out on the railroad. So they'd be cattle drives into Sheridan from relatively close places like the Big Run Basin into Sheridan. So there would be saddle shops there to make saddles and other kinds of horse tack. But another thing was that you you get the development of the wealthier ranchers in the area and also dude ranches, particularly in the Big Run Mountains just to the west of Sheridan. But also there were wealthy ranchers in the area, uh, particularly the town of Bighorn was settled by remittance men in the 19th century, like younger sons of very wealthy, actually aristocratic families, especially from the British Isles. So that was a big center of wealth and power. But they also were ranchers and had combined with this kind of upper class horse culture because there was always, for example, a big polo scene there. So those guys were interested in kind of expensive, fancy saddles to ride around. So that created a kind of market for saddle makers in the area to make more high end sort of saddles. So you also get dudes, as they would call them, tourists, I guess, coming to the dude ranches uh, who would also buy things from local saddle makers. Maybe not saddles, but, you know, nice tool belts and things like that. All those things kind of came together to explain why there's such a rich history of saddle makers in Sheridan. Through the culmination of ranching that catered to cowboys, wealthy ranchers, and tourists alike, Sheridan in the 19th and early 20th centuries possessed multiple saddle shops to cater to varied customer demand. Names like John Ernst of Ernst Saddlery, Rudy Mudra, and countless others were equated with high-quality craftsmanship across the state and beyond. But by the mid-20th century, one saddlemaker would leave an everlasting impact on the leatherworking industry as a whole, influencing countless leatherworkers and continuing to inspire others today. Dr. Evans describes the early life of Don King, master saddlemaker and originator of the famous Sheridan style. As a boy... Don traveled widely all over the West with his dad, Archie King, who was an itinerant cowboy. And Don became interested very at a very young age in the various crafts carried out in the world of cowboys, including rawhide braiding and other things, but especially leather carving. So he would work at these various saddle shops all over the West, Southwest and California and other places where he traveled. So then when he settled in Sheridan after World War II, he actually learned how to make saddles at that point from Rudy Mudra in Sheridan. But he developed this carving style, which was just a combination of things from all these different saddle shops that he'd become knowledgeable about and worked in those styles and his own style. And, and then he, as he gained more of a reputation, he particularly got contracts to do trophy saddles for rodeos, starting with some of the local rodeos near Sheridan, but expanding to the national rodeo organizations. The experience gained from working in saddle shops across the country all influenced the work of Don King ultimately culminating in the Sheridan style. Unique, highly ornate, and extremely detailed in its carving, the Sheridan style has come to be characterized by several notable attributes. Compared to other styles, they tend to use a lot of natural colors and dyes. The emphasis tends to be on the carving and not so much on putting engraved silver. The carving itself tends to be very small, fine, intricate, and these complex patterns on the leather with an emphasis on flowers. The sort of classic King Sadlery Sheridan style saddle, the emphasis was on these five-petaled wild roses. And arranging these intricate kind of patterns that almost look like medieval scrolls or something on the leather, kind of making your flowers smaller and smaller. And it's really fine working, yet for the really good carver, you can get up really close and you don't see any flaws or any errors. Don would carve every little bit of his saddle so you could lift up one part of it and look underneath and the leather underneath would all be carved, even though you didn't even see it. 
Don King's work in developing the Sheridan style both incorporated the Western tradition while simultaneously drawing on other mediums. With a library in which to draw inspiration and experiment, even in retirement he would continue to improve and explore new ideas. He was always discovering new things that influenced him. Like I remember at his house, he had this quite large library that he drew on. He had a lot of old saddle catalogs in it, but he also had other sources for design, for like architectural design and wood carving, you know, and he drew on all those things. And he'd, he'd just get a little element here. He'd look at a pattern and just see some shape of leaf that he liked or something and, and then incorporate it into his own work. So he was endlessly creative. He was the person who had a great knowledge of the traditions, was completely and thoroughly grounded in the traditions of Western saddle making, and then was able to use that to be creative because it gave him this huge repertoire of things to draw on and recombine in his own work. In addition to his work as a master saddle maker and leather worker, Don King was also an accomplished toolmaker. These tools equally influenced the development of the Sheridan style itself, where, like other custom saddle makers, industry tools were not equipped to transfer the small, highly ornate designs onto leather. As a result, Don King's tools were highly sought after by other leather workers and saddle makers. Well, tools are a very important part of it. I mean, Don King was a master toolmaker, and he couldn't have developed the Sheridan style without all the kind of specialized tools that he made. I remember going to... Um, Oh, that professional leatherwork organization used to meet in Sheridan. Don would set up a table out just outside the main door of the convention center and sell tools that he'd made. And he would just get mobbed, literally. And he'd sell out the tools really fast. And then all these people would be really disappointed because they weren't able to buy his tools. But, but, but tools are a really important part of the Sheridan style. At, at least when I was there studying, it was because the kind of standard tools you could buy weren't really effective at doing work in that style. I mean, Don was always making specialized tools for these new kinds of flowers he'd come up with, and his work would get finer and finer, so he would need finer and finer tools for himself, but then he'd sell them to others. And I mean, so the tools are a really important part of the Sheridan style. In addition to his own accomplishments in leatherworking, saddle making, and tool making, Don King would equally share his knowledge with those eager to learn. Those that did learn, either from working at King's Saddlery or otherwise, would take the Sheridan style in new, differing directions. The result would continue a legacy drawing from the original work of Don King while developing a style distinctive from saddle makers, incorporated not only into saddles, but through a variety of mediums as well. And he influenced all these other people, and then other people took it in different directions. If you work for King Sathery, like Bill Gardner did much of his career, and, and Jim Jackson has a lot of his career, you were somewhat more limited in what you could do because he had to work in the style of the shop. But certainly people took the Sheridan style, so recognizably in that style, developed for the most part by Don King, but did their own thing. I mean, Chester Haight did very distinctive work, but also worked identifiably in the Sheridan style as did Bill King and, and, and many others. And you get other interesting things like Jim Jackson, who has an MFA from the University of Wyoming and a, has had a career as a painter, uh, but also as a son of a saddle maker, has done some really interesting things where he's combined painting and leatherwork in different ways. But even in his paintings where he uses leather or leatherwork patterns, you can see it's the Sheridan style he tends to work in. Don King would pass away in 2007, leaving behind a legacy that continues today. As we move towards the end of this episode, we look at the lasting impact of the Sheridan style and the growing popularity of the contemporary leatherworking and custom saddle making industry.
been in a renaissance period, especially since social media. I mean, it's been a huge renaissance and it's become it's become an art form. You know, a lot of young people in it have gotten into it that probably would have never had gotten into it. And it's kind of the new cool doing it. But uh, now it's kind of the cool thing to do. And, you know, it's it's really fun to watch this industry grow. And it's gone from being a brick-and-mortar industry. There's very few shops and towns or anything to a, to a cottage industry like myself, you know, and, you know, most makers. We work out of our houses. Based in Buffalo, saddle maker Andy Stevens has seen the industry change and grow from when he first started in the 1990s. While the number of saddle shops have fallen since the mid-20th century, home-based shops are increasingly common. The rise of social media has also increased the ability to more easily interact with and view the work of others both nationally and internationally. As a result, custom saddle making and the leatherworking industry as a whole has experienced a renewed interest by those of all ages. Designs and styles of carving continue to change and evolve, drawing on the traditional such as the Sheridan style, while incorporating contemporary styles and ideas from multiple sources. Due in part to a changing market and the artistic association with the Sheridan and other highly intricate styles, saddles have entered into a category of their own in the Western art market, including both historically significant saddles as well as the work of contemporary saddle makers. Dr. Evans explains this development in greater detail. I think the emergence of saddles as an art form that people collect is especially maybe like a mid-20th century or a post-World War II or later. You get places like the Buffalo Bill Historic Center in Cody of museums and galleries and private collectors who collect quote-unquote Western art, fancy Western saddles or, and maybe other kinds of tack, like hitched horse hair and things like that, are very much part of that and, and get defined as part of that art scene. And sometimes people who collect that kind of stuff might be more interested in kind of older antique saddles, but also by the latter part of the 20th century, you're getting this market for new saddles, you know, a very fancy intricate carving on them, but also the idea that there are master saddle makers whose names people in the know recognize, like obviously Don King, or the development of something like the Sheridan style, which is essentially a kind of, one thing it is, is a kind of brand. Really, I mean, it's, it's a prestigious kind of saddle. So if you have a saddle made from someone in Sheridan or made from someone who identifiably works in the Sheridan style or has some connection to Sheridan, you know, that becomes a commodity in the marketplace. The history of Wyoming is one experienced from horseback. From the early days of ranching to the modern day, the saddle has, and continues to, play a significant role in the state. In the following episodes, we will explore the work of contemporary saddle makers across Wyoming, examining their continued importance, relevance, and never faltering attention to high quality craftsmanship through the words of those that know it best, the saddle makers themselves. Stay tuned for future episodes in the following months. In the meantime, follow us online at Instagram or Facebook through at sign Hide and Horn Podcast. You have been listening to Hide and Horn. This story was written and produced by Ian Halligan. Our main theme is by Luke Bell, and additional music was provided by Danny Huggins. This program is made possible in partnership with Culture Conservation Corps and with the support of a grant from the Wyoming Cultural Trust Fund, a program of the Department of State Parks and Cultural Resources. This program is also supported in part by a grant from Think Why Wyoming Humanities. <laughs>